Romans 9, 10, and 11. We'll just do whole chapters at a time. Uh, but we're actually going to spend like four weeks in chapter 12. Last week we did about one verse. Today we're going to do two verses. And uh, we'll pick up the pace from there. Um, you're, you're in college. And the way the narrative goes in, in our Western culture is that this is the place of learning and of gaining those valuable facts. This is the place of knowledge. And what you're doing right now, sitting here listening to a preacher, is in the realm of religion, privatized faith, or feelings. And, and the way the narrative goes, never should the two mix, really. They're, they're, there's knowledge and, and facts, there's religion and faith. And um, Paul here in this text, particularly, pretty much the Bible everywhere, uh, strongly challenges this. Uh, Four times, pretty strongly in these two verses, Paul is saying, think. I need you to think with me. And tonight we're going to be looking at the central part of our minds in the Christian life. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12. Feel free to follow along. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. All right, please pray with me, if you would. Uh, good Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for this night. Thank you for these students that uh, braved nasty cold weather. And for sure, at this time of the semester, they have many things to do. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious, as you promised, to be present but also to open our minds to understand what we have in front of us, soften our hearts, and by your Spirit, press these gospel truths into reality. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, perhaps some of you have read or heard of the book by A.J. Jacobs, The Year of Living Biblically. Whoever has has started chuckling already. Uh, A.J. Jacobs is a... Uh, well, he's a very funny guy, and a, and a journalist, and he set out to, in this book, this experiment, an experiment that became a book, to follow every rule of the Bible. The big ones, uh, like the Ten Commandments and love your neighbor, and the one he particularly liked, be fruitful and multiply, um, and uh, even the small ones, the smallest ones, um, hundreds of often ignored ones, and some of these are really quite funny, and I found one of the funniest ones to be the commandment to stone to stone your adulterers. So uh, this is uh, this is his telling of how to be faithful as a 21st century Westerner. When, it, when the Bible commands the Old Testament people to stone adulterers, I'm just going to sort of read this text. Really funny. So the most commonly mentioned punishment method in the Hebrew Bible is stoning. So I figured at the very least I should try to stone somebody. But how? I can't tell you how many people have suggested I get the adulterers and blasphemers together and get them stoned in the cannabis sense, which is a very interesting idea, but I haven't smoked pot since I was, a, since I was at Brown University. So instead, I figured my loophole would be this, that the Bible doesn't specify the size of the stone. So pebbles. A few days ago, I gathered a handful of small white pebbles from Central Park, which I stuffed in my back pants pocket. 
Now all I needed were some victims. I decided to start with Sabbath breakers, because in a city like New York, workaholic city, it would be really easy to find Sabbath breakers. I noticed this pot-bellied guy at the Avis store down on the block that he'd worked both on Saturday and Sunday, so he was guilty no matter what. Here's the thing. Even with pebbles, it's really hard to stone people. My plan had been to walk nonchalantly past him and chuck a few pebbles at the small of his back. But after a couple past fails, I realized it was a bad idea. A chucked pebble, no matter how small, does not go unnoticed. Uh, this book is pretty much filled with examples like this. Jacobs is trying to figure out, is, as he would describe himself, an agnostic, secular Jew, how to live biblically. And he recognized, as he did this, and he spent a lot of time in lots of different Christian communities, wherever he went, that the tendency was for people to be very selective in what they did and did not do. Some Christians here take these rules very seriously, and some take those rules very seriously. And he thought, I should try and take them all very seriously. Uh, But what I think we realize, if we step back, is that all of us, like Jacob's, somehow think we can live the Christian life by following the rules rightly. That the Christian life ends up being a matter of conduct. And it doesn't necessarily require a radical change in who we are. Or how we think. For Jacobs, the Christian life was doing all the rules. And for many of us in this room tonight, we think the Christian life is a matter of the way we behave and the things we do and don't do. But Paul in this text is going to challenge us and say, it's not fundamentally about what you do and what you don't do. You need a radical transformation that begins with a new mind. So tonight, that's the main point. That's what Paul's going to challenge us with, that God transforms us by renewing our minds. And uh, we're just going to look at three things, because that's what we always do, unless I look at two things. God forbid, sometimes I look at four things. That's a really long night. Tonight, three things. So your moldable mind, your mind made new, the marks of a new mind. And if you're a note taker, there are these things. So, just let you know, they're there every week. Your multiple mind, your mind made new, and the marks of a new mind. And uh, the first thing that Paul puts in our face here in verse 2 is that we have minds that are easily shaped. He says, do not be conformed to this world. He's going to say something like this twice. It's these really strange commands. They're called... Well, technically speaking, if you're an English nerd, you would know this, but nobody else necessarily would. It's a passive, it's a present passive imperative. Continuously, vigilantly, do not let this happen to you. It's like living in fear in the corner. Okay, I won't. Um, But this is is that part. He's going to say it more positively later. It's even more confusing how to put it together. But what he's saying is that we, as human beings, are easily shaped, and that this present world is shaping us. So uh, we'll look at both of those real quick. Do not be conformed to this world, which means this world is trying to conform us. That we live, wherever we may live, in a place in this world that is actively shaping us. And I'm not saying this as someone that thinks we live in a terrible, bad place. I'm not one of these people that simply assume culture's bad. We need to retreat and go live out in the woods together in a commune. It'd be great. I'm, I'm, I'm here in the middle of the university and the city because I think it's great. I believe God gave us culture, and culture's good. 
But it is true that culture has a formative impact on us. It shapes us. It molds us. In some ways, it makes us. And it does this really powerfully and yet subtly where we're not necessarily aware of it. And uh, part of it's because we are creatures that are easily shaped. We are given to conformity. Paul says, don't be conformed because we are so easily conformed. I mean, we like to think we're rigid, stiff, set. But we're easily shaped by the ideas and the trends of our times. I mean, you'll, you'll see this in like 40 years. You'll go back and look at how you dress now, and dress 10 years from now, and dress 10 years from now, and dress 10 years ago from now. You were so influenced in numerous ways by our culture. That's just small, petty things. Uh, the imitative nature of humans is always on display because I have small children. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on the moment and how I feel about it and what they happen to do or say, they are being primarily shaped by moi and my wife. So it was a little disconcerting a couple nights ago when one of my children, who will remain unnamed, uh, dismissed themselves from the table, as they often do, without permission, and started playing. And after like two seconds, this kid said, Darn it, darn it, darn it! Well, <laughs> um, after my wife and I looked at each other, and I sat, said, progeny in the chair, and had a little chat about the nature of frustration and patience and the proper use of English, uh, the discussion quickly turned to who was responsible <laughs> for forming this child in this way. Because uh, a kid doesn't just learn these phrases on their own. They, they got it from someone. Which one of you was it? <laughs> Looking at the babysitter. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it wasn't the babysitter. And it was one of us. Um, and, you know, we quickly naturally said, which one of us did this? Because we realize our son is easily conformed. And we are the shapers. And we recognize that quite easily with our children. But we don't recognize that about ourselves. That as humans, we remain shapeable. That we are molded by our culture. Um, yeah, and, and one of the chief ways we see this is in ourselves, the way we think about ourselves. Paul goes there in verse 3. He says, Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Now, I believe it's the case that Paul could say this to any group of people in any century, anywhere. Uh, because from Genesis till the end of time, Human history is marked by selfishness. It really is. I mean, there are, there are exceptions, of course. But we all struggle. No, we don't even struggle. We're just good at it. And usually pretty, don't mind too much. We're given over to self-regard, taking ourselves more seriously than we should, and, and being selfish. And um, Paul, rightly, sort of musters all the authority he has in this verse and says, by the grace given to me as an apostle, I'm telling you guys, don't think of yourselves more highly than you should. And uh, I'm just, I love our culture. I am so grateful that I was born, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, in the year that I was born in, <laughs> in the decade I was born in, in this place, in this time, it's, it's given me clean water, good health, good medicine, Education. I mean, I'm just grateful for all these things. And yet, I say this realistically, 
you know, if we stop and step back culturally and look at how our culture has molded us and shaped us, some disturbing things should rise to your attention. Things that have to do with selfishness. So this current 21st century world, and it's not just you, it's me too, um, these are some of the things we really strongly believe. Uh, one of them is modernism. And I don't mean like philosophical modernism. I mean the belief that whatever is modern and new is right and best. So this new car is better than that old car. And this new book's better than that old book. And this new way of thinking about things is better than that old way of doing things. And this music's better than that music. We have a deep-rooted bias for the contemporary. And we disregard the ancient. Uh, secondly, we're marked by cynicism. You are a cynical group of people. Some exceptions. I'm cynical than, more than most of you, unfortunately. And uh, that, that's the belief that we have the ability to sort of see through everything. And at the bottom of everything, there's really nothing. There's no purpose. There's no truth. There's no reason. Uh, and we think we, this is the selfish part, we as individuals can actually see through it all. We can know it all and know there's nothing there. So it's a very cynical culture. Now, in America, we're pretty optimistic because we can be wealthy enough to still be happy, which brings us to consumerism. The belief that even though there's no reason for anything to be true or exist, that if I gather enough stuff, especially enough new stuff, I can be comfortable and happy in this world. If I can just get me the right person, the right wife, the right house, the right car, the right job, the right power, the right security, I can scratch enough together to make myself happy. And uh, lastly, and I could go on for a while, but I'm just putting up some of the major shapes here, the, the contour of the mold. I call it autonomous subjectivism. That's a big way of saying, deep down, most of us believe that we have the right as individuals, autonomously. I have individually the right to believe or feel whatever I want to. Whatever I think is right. Whatever I feel is true. Is true. That's autonomous subjectivism. Uh, and, and really, with an emphasis on the feel at this point, whatever I feel is true, whatever I want to be true, that's what's true, and that's what I'm going to do, because I have the right to do that. Uh, those are very, very, very powerful ideas, thoughts, aspects of our culture that you've grown up in. It's been reinforced a million times in the music, the TV shows, the culture, your professors, You've drank that Kool-Aid your whole life, and I have too. And it's shaped us. It really has. Yep, so um, the question is, can you see it? Do you recognize it? Can you recognize it? And the next question is, can you do what Paul says here? Do not be conformed, which is, can you resist it? Do you even want to? Um, Well... Uh, we are called to resist it. But the reality is, just resisting it without the transformation Paul's calling for is not enough. What we need is a mind that's made new. And, and Paul is not just being negative here about the culture, because he, I mean, he's writing to Rome. It's the, it's the most dirty pagan place in the world at the time. And he loves these people. And he wants to go there. He's engaging it. He's not just beating up on it. Same thing's true here. I'm not beating up on you. not beating up on me. Um, but it's not just enough to resist and run away and hide. Actually, God wants to come and renew our minds. And, and the transformation he's after is a total one. Not just our minds, but it's a total transformation. Whenever I say total transformation, I think of like some cheesy workout video. I don't know why. Like... Take these pills, take this diet plan, and do this. But Paul is after a total transformation. And you see it at the beginning of verse 2. 
Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And it's that phrase, that word transformed, that really gets the total aspect of this uh, in. Uh, it's the same word that's used to describe Jesus. If you don't know this story, but there's an aspect in Jesus' ministry. Uh, an instance where he takes some of his men, goes up on a mountain, and he meets with God the Father. And as he's doing so, uh, he's meeting actually with some other prophets, and God speaks, his body is transformed. It's called, uh, well, the, the Greek word is something along the lines of a metamorphosis. It, it's not that he just looked different or sounded different. Something qualitatively changed about him. And that's the same word being used right here. The God is after a complete transformation of our person. Not just, I want to change this little thing about you. You're so nice, except for when you're not nice. I just want to make you a little nicer. You're so nice, but you're a little stupid. I just want to make you a little smarter. You're so nice, except for you really love watching girls too much. I want to take that away from you. Um, he's after a complete transformation of us. And he doesn't want to just make us nicer people or good people. He wants to make us like Jesus. He's been saying this for a couple chapters now. That the goal of the Christian life and what he's doing in our lives is to bring us into conformity, that word, conformity, with the image of Jesus. That Jesus, being a person that loved God and others perfectly, is the goal of the Christian life. That we would know him and love him and become like him. That is, we're supposed to be beautiful like him. Now, that total transformation actually begins perhaps surprisingly, with, with thoughts, with the renewal of the mind, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's where he goes in verse 2. And if you don't think thinking is important to Paul, look at verse 3. He says it three times. Think. I want you to think about how you're thinking. Don't think of yourselves too highly when you think about yourselves. Uh, but think with sober judgment. A couple of days ago, my son, I asked him a question. I don't think it was a particularly hard question, but I guess he found it hard because he stopped for a second and goes, hmm, think, think, think. <laughs> too much Winnie the Pooh in that boy's life. And um, actually, I'm not sure there can be too much Winnie the Pooh in a boy's life. I'll take that back. Um, but, but Paul here is highlighting the central place of the mind in the life of a Christian. And you need to let that set in a little bit. Uh, either because you don't believe it because you've never heard it, or because uh, just living in the academic environment, you feel like the life of the mind has been shoved into a corner as regards your faith. Paul is saying that the mind occupies a central place in the Christian life and faith. There are loves, there's desire, there's will. But thoughts and your mind occupy a central place. We don't need just some new thoughts. We need a renewed mind. Our our thinker needs some work. It needs some work. Not just some new information. It needs to be overhauled. And uh, it's possible that you've bought into this cultural assumption. It's been said many times. Maybe you believe this. That if you just sort of believe the Bible and do what it says, that you're a thoughtless automaton, just following orders from some old ancient authority. You're a zombie. You don't think for yourself. Be a free thinker. Think for yourself and listen to all the authorities of today to you how to live instead. Um, Paul is talking about a mind renewed. Not one put to sleep, but one that's renewed, brought to life. 
Uh, N.T. Wright, one of the best Christian thinkers of the day, and one of the best New Testament scholars of the day, has said, at the center of the Christian life is a mind awake, alert, not content to take a few guidelines off the page, but determined to understand why human life is meant to be lived in one way rather than another. Uh, to give you another aspect on it, there's a, there's a guy I know who, who's a grad student in philosophy here, who's a Christian. Some of you may actually have him in a class. He's a TA. I ran into him the other day, and he was meeting with a freshman or sophomore. And uh, he was having a delightful time. And I, I walked up to him and said, hey, what are you guys working on? And the, the, the girl actually said, uh, the female student said something like, oh, talking about all the deep questions in life. I'm like, are you suffering? She's like, no. And I turned to him and looked at him, and he goes, isn't it perverse? I mean, he was sort of joking. He's not perverse at all, but he was delighting in this. He's a Christian who believes Scripture, but is asking the deep questions of life. And it's engaging, and it's wonderful. It's alive. So uh, the question then is how? How do we renew our minds? Or do we? Uh, And if we look carefully at the text, it's not us. We're told here that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's that same kind of uh, wording as before. It's something that we sort of are passive in. Something else is transforming us, and yet we're somehow responsible for it. It's not primarily me that transforms my own mind. And uh, this is why it's important that we read this thing in the context. That everything is by the mercies of God. Verse 1. By the mercies of God, I appeal to you, brothers to present your body as a living sacrifice. And uh, what we have here is a reminder that the gospel is an education that you always need. It's a re-education that you always need. That it includes, as one of the aspects of the, of the gospel, the promise that Jesus gave that he would send his spirit to take his words and teach you and train you and transform you. That's one of God's mercies. The promise that you can't transform yourself, but that He will be actively at work doing what I'm doing right now, using my fallible words through this word to teach you and change you and transform your hearts. That's His promise. That's His mercy. And that's what He's doing to teach you and transform you, renewing you by the gospel. And this is not a school you ever graduate away from. No one finishes, no one ever wraps it up and gets their master's. Uh, My master's degree is called the Master's of Divinity. It's the most pretentious name in the history of academia. Like, you could ever master that. It's ridiculous. But uh, they had to call it something. I don't know why they called it that. The reality is you, you never graduate from this school. We never completely get the gospel. We've never been transformed as much as we should until Jesus finishes his work in us. But he promises to keep working, teaching us and transforming us. And uh, this is why when I say, and I say this pretty often, and if you're new here, you've never heard me say it, so you can get it the first time, that RUF is for everybody. RUF is for anyone. If you're a Christian who's heard the gospel once a year, once a week, a couple hundred times a year, for 20 years, or someone that's never heard it, or somewhere in between and you're confused or angry, you don't know, uh, we all need it. Christian, your education is never done. The gospel that I proclaim through this text is what you need for the renewal of your heart and the transformation of your life. If you're here and you don't know what Christianity is, what do you need? You need a clear understanding of the gospel that I'm teaching. 
And you're not just going to get it once, but as you sit and hear it over and over, it will begin to make sense to you. So that's why RUF is for everybody. Now lastly, once you, once you have this renewed mind, well, maybe if you don't, how do you know you have it? What sticks out about a renewed mind? And the reality is, is the renewed mind should have certain marks, certain characteristics. And uh, it, it'll be marked by a couple things. I think it's marked by lots of things, but just two that this text highlights. One is you'll have a new view of God's will. New view of God's will. Uh, I work with students for a living. So I'm used to hearing, and I think this is not just you, I'm beating up on you. It's just, this is American church culture. Uh, we take God's will and inherently wrap it around our own selfish desires. So we want, and I mean, I'm, I'm there, I've been there. <laughs> we want God to send us, what's God's will for me? We want God to send us a letter in the mail, or an email, or a text. Well, actually, we'll take anything. Uh, tell me where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to do, who I'm supposed to date, what I'm supposed to marry. Give me those important details so I can, I, can, I can go on with my life, my story, and get it done. Please. That's the way we tend to think about God's will. And it's frankly, inherently selfish. It, it's wrapped around what we want. And we want God to give it to us and bless us. Uh, not even thinking that uh, the story we're in is this grand book full of all God's people and where God is taking us instead of the little story that we have that we hope God will make work for us. Um, the, the way this text talks about God's will is very different. He's saying that unless God is transforming your mind, you don't even know what it is. And that's really saying something because God's made His will very clear. Love God. Love neighbor. Do justice. Love mercy. That's His will. Do the mission. Embrace the kingdom. That, that's the nature of His will. And He's saying unless you have a renewed mind a transformed life, you will not be able to discern it. You won't be able to see it, and you won't desire it, and you won't want to do it. You won't want to do it. You will want God to reveal His will for you because of your story, which you want to happen. But do you actually want His will? Which is that God would transform you and make you like Jesus. That's His will. His chief will is to make you beautiful like a son. Do you see that and want that? If you don't see that and want that, you really should not be surprised if he doesn't tell you who you're supposed to marry, or where you're supposed to go, or grad school you're supposed to get into. So it, it, this involves a new view of God's will, and lastly, a new view of ourselves. And, and Paul finishes up with this in verse 3, that those who have a new mind think about themselves with sober judgment. Now, I, I sort of call this the American Idol Syndrome. I don't watch the show. I have a it's a confession. I have a very sensitive shame thing. Like when people are doing things that are horrible to watch, and I don't mean like morally. When people are making fools of themselves, or are doing something that makes some people cringe. Like if it makes you cringe a little bit, it makes me bubble up and want to die. Okay, I also put it. Like pretty much every movie or TV show that Steve Carell is in, I can't watch The Office. Because it makes me want to die. I mean, it just hurts so much. And so, American Idol is like this. Yeah, they're great performers, but the early weeks, it's filled with bad performers who are self-deluded, who think they're amazing. 
I think they're amazing, and they have no talent whatsoever. And it's you're laughing because you know it's true. And you're like, some of you are laughing because it's funny, and it is funny, and it kills me. It hurts so much. Can't watch it. Uh, I call it the American. I mean, we think we're better than we are. Um, you know, the, the most recent example I had was a couple months ago in the weight room. I, I know exactly who I am pride-wise in the weight room. I'm an old man who's not going to get any stronger. Like, I'm plateaued a while ago. So there's this guy in there who doesn't work out very much who's an absolute monster. I mean, this guy was born to lift weights. He's a little pudgy, but he just sort of like, what? He just sort of comes in, does this, and like is immediately bench-pressing the mid-300s, which is a lot of weight. He's just a big dude. And uh, this little kid, not Jake's size. Jake's not little, but Jake would be huge if he lifted. <laughs> About Jake's size, walks in, never seen him in the weight room before, and says, I'm going to do that! Pointing to the guy who's bench pressing 390 pounds. And uh, the guy on the, on the bench press said, yeah, man, you do that. Which was sort of a, yeah, sure. Uh, and I, I think I actually said this out loud. It's like, I'll never do that. Uh, the ability to soberly assess who you are and what you can do. I'm not saying that little guy couldn't do 390. He probably could not do it without illegal drugs, however. Um, <laughs> no, he could not. No. Um, but it's a mark of Christian maturity and a renewed mind and transformed life that you can look at yourself and not beat yourself up and hate yourself. But also know your limits and weaknesses. I mean, some of you are filling out forms right now. We have to list your strengths and weaknesses, and it absolutely kills you. Right? It kills you. Like, both of them horrify you. My strengths and my weaknesses. And eventually, as you mature and grow and see yourself, you own them. You own your weaknesses with sadness, but it doesn't debilitate you. You own your weaknesses, your strengths with some gratitude, because you know it's not really you. And you're grateful for them. And you're able to realistically assess yourself. It's a humility that God is building into your life as He makes you like Jesus. This is going to be really important next week and the week after that as we start talking about life and the community that God wants. A community filled with love and service. If you're not humble, if you don't see yourself rightly, if you think you're better than everyone else, you're not going to be a very uh, useful, helpful, loving part of that community. You're just going to walk around with tons of expectations, feeling slighted, waiting for everyone to recognize how awesome you are, instead of moving toward others in love. So uh, I had some diagnoses for you um, to know, help you assess whether or not, uh, how you're doing in some of these, and I'm just going to abbreviate them. If you're a proud person, and by proud I mean if you're easily offended, if you're constantly on the defensive, um, you might have an issue here. If you have an easy answer for everything, an easy answer for everything, you might have a problem here. It might be due to your tradition. You've just been brought up in the tradition unthinkingly and you've never allowed any doubts or thoughts or challenges to allow you to further question things. So you have an easy, quick answer for everything. And that tradition might be your religious tradition or it might be the tradition you receive in the halls of this college. But you are not open are teachable. And as, as, as uh, N.T. Wright said, at the heart of the Christian life is a mind that's alert and awake, trying to figure out life, humbly asking questions. And thirdly, if you're constantly preoccupied with your plans, your goals, yourself, your thoughts, and what God's going to do to get you there, you might have a problem. 
So what is it in the end that delivers us from the old mind? The unrenewed mind. The dull, self-consumed mind. And ultimately, it's the love of Jesus. It's God at work applying the gospel, which is the message of God's love, to our hearts. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not able to watch a lot of movies. I have a bunch of kids. And two hours of free time to watch a movie is hard to come by. So one of the best movies I've seen in the last couple of years, I saw like two years ago, and I didn't plan on seeing it. I was in a plane. It happened to be on, so I watched it. And it's uh, Crazy Stupid Love. Some of you have seen it? Yes, yes. Yes, I was there. The movie has some fans. It's, uh, the movie is certainly worth your time. So uh, one of the chief characters of the, of the, of the movie is Jacob, uh, played by Ryan Gosling, who's this classic hotshot playboy, <laughs> playboy womanizer. Um, he's a total player. Every night he goes to the bar. Every night he seduces a new woman. Every night he takes her home and, uh, and uses them. And that's who he is. He's completely self-absorbed. But on one occasion, he meets someone different. And he goes home with a girl named Hannah, played by Emma Stone. Instead of sleeping together, they spend the entire night talking, telling stories about each other, getting to know one another. And it's something completely different for him, unlike any girl he's ever met. She's not interested in using him or being used by him. And as the story unfolds throughout the movie, unexpectedly, he falls in love with her. And it's like the spell, his selfishness, is broken. He no longer goes to the bar and seduces women. He sort of drops the self-absorbed strut that he has. He's not walking with the swagger anymore. Somehow he's brought down to earth, not in a way that crushes him, or demeans him, or dehumanizes him, in a way that makes him actually human, normal healthy. And he actually begins living for something besides himself. And that's what we need to hear. That's what we need to see. That this transformation that God is after in our lives isn't something that we can do on our own. We actually don't even want to do it. It's something that God brings to bear in our lives in the person of Jesus. Someone who wants us, who wants to know us, who wants to draw near to us. And As we sit down and get to know Him in the Gospel, as we hear the message that renews our minds, it it breaks the spell. It breaks the spell of self. That God, who knows exactly what we're like, loves us enough to come and engage us, and in the person of Jesus, to actually lay down His life for us. That breaks the spell. It renews our minds. It transforms our lives. Okay, let's pray together.